Welcome to Mysteries to Die For and this toe tag. I am T.G. Wolf, and I'm here with Jack, my piano player and producer. This is normally a podcast where we combine storytelling with original music to put you at the heart of a mystery. Today is a bonus episode that we call a toe tag. It's the first chapter from a fresh release in the mystery, crime, or thriller genre. Today's featured release is Broadcast Blues by R.G. Belsky. All right, so we have a little bit of a prologue today. So we're gonna do the prologue and the first chapter. Here we go. Prologue, from the diary of Wendy Kyle. If you're reading this, I'm already dead. How is that for an attention-grabbing opening line? I know, I know, it's a little bit melodramatic. And I'm not normally the melodramatic type. Really? No, Wendy Kyle is the kind of woman who deals in facts for a living. The kind of woman who doesn't let emotion cloud her judgment. And, maybe most importantly of all, the kind of woman who never blindly puts her trust in anyone. Especially a man. Hey, I'm not some man-hating bitch or anything like that, no matter what you might have heard or thought about me. I like men. I love men. Or at least I've loved a few men in my life. It's just that I don't trust them anymore. So wouldn't it be ironic, or maybe a little bit filling, I'm sorry, or maybe a little bit fitting to look at it completely objectively, if trusting a man this one time was what wound up costing me my own life in the end? Here's the real bottom line for me. If I don't succeed in what I'm about to do in the Ronald Bannister case, well, then it's important to me that someone knows the truth about what happened to me, and that it was the lies all of the damn lies men have told that were the death of me. The contents of this document were among evidence seized by homicide detectives from the office of Wendy Kyle Harbaker Investigations, 218 West 42nd Street, New York City. This entry is listed as Police Exhibit A. Opening Credits. The Rules According to Claire. Nora O'Donnell is 50 years old. Samantha Guthrie, 51, Hoda Coteby, 58, Robin Roberts, 62, and Gail King, 68. The point I'm trying to make here is that TV's newscasters, specifically women TV newscasters, don't have to be cute, perky, young talking heads to succeed in the media world where I work. We've come a long way since the days when a respected newswoman like Jane Pauley was replaced by the younger, Deborah Norville on the Today Show because some network executive, a middle-aged man of course, decided Polly was getting too old to appeal to the television audience. Or when an anchorwoman named Christine Kraft lost her job at a station in Kansas City after a focus group determined that she was, quote, too old, too unattractive, and not differential to men. She was 37. Well, 50 is the new 40, or maybe it's even the new 30. And let's get something straight right up front. I'm not one of those women who normally get stressed out about every birthday that passes by or every wrinkle on my face or every gray hair or two I spot in the mirror. That is not me. No way. I am not hung up on age at all. But I'm about to turn 50 this year. The big 5-0. The half century mark. And the truth is, I'm having a bit of trouble dealing with that. My name is Claire Carlson, and I'm the news director of Channel 10 News in New York City. 
I am also an on-air reporter for our Channel 10 News Show, and I've broken some pretty big exclusives in recent years that have gotten me a lot of attention and made me kind of a media star. But this whole business of turning 50 still seems odd to me. When I was in my 20s, I was a star reporter at the newspaper and won a Pulitzer Prize. In my 30s, after the newspaper went out of business, I switched to TV news at Channel 10. And in my 40s, I've been juggling two jobs, TV executive as the station's news director and also as an on-air personality breaking big stories. Turning 30 and then 40 never really seemed like that big of a deal for me. It was more fun than tragic. Look at me, I'm 40. But 50? I'm not so sure about this one. 50 is something completely different, at least the way I see it at the moment. I'm not sure where I go with my life after 50. It couldn't be happening at a worse time for me either. Channel 10, the TV station where I work, is being sold to a new owner, and this has left everyone in the newsroom worried about what might happen next. My latest boss and I don't get along, and I'm afraid she might be looking for a reason to fire me. My personal life situation is even worse. I've been married three times, all of them ending in divorce, and right now, I'm not in any kind of relationship. I have a daughter, and she didn't even know I was her mother for the first 25 years of her life or so, so we don't exactly have a traditional mother-daughter relationship. The only constant in my life, the one thing I always turn to for comfort when my life is in turmoil, is the news. This newsroom at Channel 10, where I work, is my true home, my sanctuary. So each day I wrap it, along with all the people in it and the stories we cover, around me like a security blanket to protect myself from everything else that is going on around me. All I needed now was a big story to chase. The bigger, the better. That's what I was looking forward to right now. But as the old saying goes, be careful what you wish for, because you just might get it. And that's what happened to me with the Wendy Kyle murder. Part 1, The Honey Trap. Chapter 1. Susan Endicott, the executive producer from Channel 10 News, walked into my office and sat down on a chair in front of my desk. What are you doing? she asked. Talking to you, I said. I mean about tonight's newscast. Oh, that. Don't be impertinent with me, Carlson. What I was actually doing at that moment was putting together one of those old David Letterman-style top ten lists. I like to do that sometimes. My topic today was top ten things an aspiring woman TV newscaster should not say during a job interview. My list went like this. Number ten. What's that red light on the camera for? Number nine. Yes, Mr. Lar, I love to be your intern. Number eight. I sweat a lot on air. Number seven, I can name all the presidents back to Obama. Number six, if it helps, I'm willing to get pregnant as a cheap on-air ratings ploy. Number five, Katie Couric. Who's Katie Couric? Number four, no makeup, please. I want to let my real beauty shine through. Number three, my IQ is almost three numbers. Number two, can I watch TikToks during commercial breaks? And the number one thing an aspiring woman TV newscaster should not say during a job interview, I have a personal recommendation from Harvey Weinstein. I wondered if I should ask Susan Endicott if she had any suggestions for my top 10 list. 
Probably not. She might call me impertinent again. Do you have a lead story yet for the 6 p.m. show? She asked now. Well, I said, yes and no. What does that mean? The lead story is about a controller's audit raising new questions about the viability of the city's budget goals. That's not a lead story for us, she said. Hence, my yes and no reply to your question. Well, do you have a plan for getting us a good story? I do, I said. What is it? Hope some big news happens before we got on the air at six. That's your plan? Uh-huh. The news gods will give us something before the deadline. They always do. The news gods, she repeated. You always have to believe in the news gods, Endicott. Looking out the window of my office, I could see people walking through the midtown streets of Manhattan below on a beautiful spring day. Many of them were coatless or in short sleeves. Spring was finally here in New York City, after what seemed like an endless winter of snow and cold and bundling up every time you went out. But it was spring. Yep, spring. Time for hope and new beginnings. The sun shining brightly, flowers blooming, birds chirping, all that good stuff. In a few weeks, New Yorkers would start streaming out of the city on their way to Long Island or the Jersey Shore or maybe Cape Cod. I thought about how nice it would be in a place like that right now, or maybe on a boat sailing up the New England coast, anywhere but sitting here at Channel 10 News with this woman. Except I knew that even if I did that, I'd probably wind up sooner or later sitting in another newsroom, wherever I went, talking about lead stories with some other person like Susan Endicott. Endicott and I were at war ever since she came to Channel 10. That was after the firing, or if you prefer, the forced resignation, of Jack Farron, the previous executive producer who had first hired me as a TV journalist from my newspaper career and had been my boss for most of my time here. Jack was a top-notch journalist, a good friend, and a truly decent human being. Susan Endicott was none of those things. She was an ambitious career climber who had stepped over a lot of people in her efforts to score big ratings at the stations where she worked before. That's what had landed her the Channel 10 job here in New York, and she was determined to keep her rising star no matter what it took for her to do that. She had no friends that I was aware of, no hobbies or interests, no outside life of any kind. She was completely focused on the job and on her career advancement. For what it's worth, I didn't like the way she looked either. She wasn't fat or skinny. She wasn't pretty or unattractive. She was just, well, plain. Like she didn't care about her appearance. She wore drab clothes, hardly any jewelry, no makeup that I could see. It was like her appearance simply didn't matter to her. Oh, and she wore her glasses pushed back on the top of her head when she wasn't using them. I dislike people who did that. I know it sounds crazy, but that's how I feel. It was the perfect final trait of Susan Endicott, though. I detested everything about her. And, as you can see, she wasn't too fond of me either. There were two things that had prevented her from getting rid of me so far. I've broken some exclusive stories that have got us big ratings. She did like the fact that I was an on-air media star, even if she didn't like me. So all I had to do was keep finding exclusives. Also, the owner of Channel 10, media mogul Brendan Kaiser, had backed me in a showdown with Endicott since she arrived here. 
always good having the big boss on your side when you're at odds with your immediate boss. But Kaiser was in the process of selling the station. We weren't sure yet who the new owner would be. Maybe it would be some great journalist or wonderful human being that would care about more than profits. But people like that generally don't buy big media properties like TV stations. So I was prepared for the worst once the new owner was in place. That meant I needed to keep on breaking big stories. And while I hadn't done that in a while, I needed to find a big story and in a damn hurry. You better come up with a good lead before we go on the air at six tonight, Endicott said as she stood up and said over her shoulder she started to leave my office. Or, I asked, or what? Well, that sort of sounds like you're giving me an ultimatum, I said, as in, or you're suspended, or you're fired, or your cafeteria privileges are suspended, or you need to get a permission slip to go to the bathroom, or, Endicott turned around, she glared at me. Then she pushed her eyeglasses, which she had been wearing, back to the top of her head again. A nice touch, perfect for the moment. Keep digging that hole for yourself, Carlson, she said to me. It'll make it so much easier when the time comes to get rid of you. Have a nice day, too, I said. As things turned out, it didn't take very long to find a news lead for the show. After Endicott left, Maggie Lane, the assignment editor and my top assistant, burst in to tell me that there'd just been a big murder. Someone blew up a woman's car, she said excitedly, on a busy street in Times Square. The victim's name is Wendy Kyle, and she's a former New York City cop and a controversial private investigator who handles a lot of high-profile divorce cases involving rich people, important people, catching them in sex scandals. Sounds like someone was out for revenge against her. Sex, money, power. This story has everything, Claire. Yep, the news gods saved us again. Well, there you have the intro and chapter one of Broadcast Blues. So here is my review. Broadcast Blues is an amateur sleuth mystery. Channel 10 News, Newses, Channel 10's News. No, I have it written properly. It just doesn't sound right when I say it that way. Channel 10's Claire Carlson prayed to the news gods for an explosive lead story, and she got it. Car bombing in the middle of New York City killed private investigator Wendy Kyle. Wanting to break the story to stave off the station's new owners, Claire starts digging and discovers that Kyle was into more than just cheating husbands. So the bottom line, Broadcast Blues is for you if you like brassy female leads, the pressure and pace of local TV news, and a mystery that you can sink your teeth into. So what are the strengths of this story? Claire Carlson is a fully established character who's comfortable in her own skin. She is confident and has a sharp edge that she wields on her executive producer, some witnesses, and the occasional ex-husband. Perhaps those characteristics are the reason she thrived in her industry. In this story, as you heard, she's dealing with the imminent approach of her 50th birthday, the reality of three failed marriages, and a complicated relationship with the daughter she gave up for adoption. So Claire isn't a two-dimensional character, but she really has depth, and she juggles the work-life play like many of us do. And honestly, it was when she struggled that I connected the most with Claire. The setting of local TV news brings a sense of urgency to everything Claire does. You know, often when we're reading, especially amateur sleuths, the sense of urgency can feel contrived or artificial, 
But in broadcast, broadcast blues, man, I got to say that slowly or I'm going to get all my B's mixed up here. But in broadcast blues, it's a normal part of Claire's life. So it keeps pushing Claire forward even when she had little to go on. And perhaps, you know, if she was just one of the more busybody type amateur sleuths, she would kind of give up and say it was a dead end. She doesn't really have that option because of that constant pressure from both needing to stay out in front of other uh, news stations as well as deal with Endicott and as far as, you know, trying to game her position with this new owner. So the, the sense of urgency, the sense of um, not giving up is really well developed here. The story has a nice level of complexity. At first, it seems like it's too wide to field the suspects, uh, those being all the unfaithful spouses that Kyle exposed. But the story settles into a single line of investigation at a pace that, in my opinion, was just right. It wasn't too fast, feeling like it's jumping to conclusions, but it wasn't slow so that you're just like drawing things out. I especially liked the ending. It wasn't predictable. It was exciting. And it really did wrap up the whodunit questions. This is the sixth book in the Claire Carlson mystery series, and I have not read the previous books. The mystery is standalone and does not rely on knowledge from prior books. There are some continuing characters and Claire's character arc that do bridge the, across the books, but Belsky gives us what we need to understand with making, without making us feel like we've been left out or like there's some, some joke we're not in on. So where did the story fall short of ideal? I did have a challenge with one element of the writing style. There were several passages where I lost who was speaking in an extended back and forth dialogue. I will say that consistently there were only two people speaking, but it was so extended that I just lost track. And then there were times where there were other people in the room and so that I had that question in the back of my head, well, is it still those two characters? So each time I lost track, of course, I had to pull out of the story and backtrack and count lines to figure out who was speaking. Other readers made read through the passages without the issues I had. And as you all know, I like to do, standing at the end of the mystery and looking back, I do have a few questions. They aren't about the heart or the logic of the mystery. That's definitely solid. My questions are on one particular detail that pushed the investigation forward. If you tend not to reverse engineer a mystery, which my husband says only I do, then you'll enjoy Broadcast Blues for the dynamic storytelling that it is. So Broadcast Blues was released from Ocean View Publishing and is promoted by Partners in Crime Tours. Uh, links to the Amazon site is available in the show notes. So let me introduce you to our author, R.G. Belsky. R.G. Belsky is an award-winning author of crime fiction and a journalist in New York City. His newest mystery, Broadcast Blues, was published on January 2nd by Ocean View. It is the sixth in this series featuring Claire Carlson, the news director for a New York City TV station. The first book, Yesterday's News, was named Best Mystery of 2018 at Deadly Inc. The second, Below the Fold, won the Forward Indies Award for Best Mystery of 2019. Belsky has published 20 novels, all set in New York City media world, where he's had a longer career as a top editor at the New York Post, the New York Daily News, Star Magazine, and NBC News. He also writes thrillers under the name Dana Perry. He is a contributing writer for the Big Thrill Magazine and Book Trip. Um, Partners in Crime Tours represents a network of 300 plus bloggers offering tailor-made virtual book tours 
and marketing options for crime, mystery, mystery, and thriller writers. You know, I'm not I'm not talking fast, so I'm not sure. Every now and then, my tongue's just like, no, I'm going to go this way instead of that. All right. So Partners in Crime was founded in 2011, and again, they offer virtual book tours for well-established and best-selling authors, as well as, the, as those just starting out in their careers. PICT prides itself on its tailored packages for authors with a personal touch from the tour coordinators. For more information, check out their website, partnersincrimetours.com. So that wraps up this toe tag. Um, yeah, check out Broadcast Blues. And again, especially if you like the fast-paced stories telling that's associated with TV news, if you like amateur sleuths, the mystery is really cool. It's, uh, it's not predictable. Um, you definitely think you know where it's going. Like I said, it sets up pretty easily as, or, or pretty cleanly as, well, this is going to be a, you know, a, a revenge type thing from a X, and it just ends up going in a in a very different direction. So definitely worth picking up. With that, I'll invite you to enjoy to join us next week for our first story in season seven: Games People Play. We welcome a new writer to the Mystery to Die For podcast, Larry M. Keaton. The card game Pharaoh is the featured game in Who Killed the Pharaoh Cheat? With that, I'll turn it over to Jack to take us out. <laughs>